for October 16th, 2023. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 798. Everyone is a turtle. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We are never happier than when we are uh, enjoying the things we love. We we enjoy them together. We sit around a box of pizza. I, I would say that we're the world's most fearsome fighting teens. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever the state of our shells, whole shell, half shell, whatever, whether you're green or not. We're still the world's most fearsome fighting teens. Uh, I'm, I'm Matt. I do machines. Um, I'm just sorry. I'm calling that. I'm not, I'm going completely, completely out of order. So I, you know, it's a Ninja Turtle draft, uh, I guess, but I always identified with Donatello and I, I frankly thought, uh, the bow, the staff was the, the coolest weapon, uh, even though it is not edged or, you know, pointy. Um, I, I, that I've just, uh, you know, and I, I will live and die on that. Uh, I will fight for that, that opinion. Um, I'm joined, uh, by my colleagues, Matt Belinky. Hello, Matt. You know, it's weird to hear myself agree that like, I would also like to hear, uh, have a champagne brunch with Tom Brady, <laughs> <laughs> but I think he's just, he's lived a very interesting life and he's got a lot to tell me. <laughs> um, do you want to uh, draft a Ninja Turtle? Ah, uh, let me see. I mean, I, I, I always felt like I was kind of like a rebel without a cause. So I, I'm, I'm on team Raphael all the way. Excellent. Love to hear it. Uh, Pete Fenzel joins us. Pete Kawabunga. Kawabunga to you all, and also with you, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and no, Pete, it's and with thy spirit. No, oh, okay. Kawabunga with thy spirit. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> well, see, I feel bad here because there's four people on the podcast and you guys don't know who are listening who the fourth person is. And you may be wowed and surprised and overjoyed to hear who our fourth person is. And so when I pick my Ninja Turtle, I'm also picking their Ninja Turtle. So my instinct is to say that I would be Michelangelo, the party dude, because he was always the Ninja Turtle I liked the most and the one I identified with the most. But at the same time, Michelangelo is also more popular than Leonardo is in general. So Ceteris Paribus, I would assume that somebody else would be more likely to pick Michelangelo than Leonardo. That said, our fourth person is a leading authority, so therefore they can say to lead, and in that sense, then I will say that I am, in fact, uh, Michelangelo, a party dude. And uh, excellent party, <laughs> uh, party, in fact, party, uh, in fact, and indeed, man, <laughs> in fact, and indeed, de facto and de jure, party, uh, partying, and we are delighted uh, to be joined by overthinker Richard Rosenbaum, the world's foremost expert on uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles transmedia franchise. It, it's been a while since he's been on the podcast, so this is a special treat for a uh, for a special property that we're talking about. You might remember uh, Richard from his articles on the site. He's also the author of Raise Some Shell, a critical analysis of the historical and cultural significance of Ninja Turtles. Uh, so, uh, Richard, welcome. You got stuck with the you got stuck with the last turtle. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be back. And, you know, I'm not mad about being Leonardo. <laughs> would you have liked to have been Michelangelo, Richard? No, I would have liked. No, you you, you, you chose that very well. I would have liked to have been Donatello. Um, oh. I'm, I'm on record uh, as 
being pretty clear that Donatello is the best turtle. Yep. Um, but you know, I, I'm I'll I'll take it. <laughs> well, you've expressed yeah. your you expressed that fondness. Your your prose is not nearly purple enough for us to have oh, assumed that that was the case. It's Sorry, more kind ahead, of Matt. blue. Yeah, maybe <laughs> you go blue a lot in your Ninja Turtles <laughs> philosophy books. Yes. Yeah. Could, could I ask a sort of a, an interesting meta question about Ninja Turtles to start us off? Because I think I think we've stumbled upon something interesting. So in most media, when there's a team, the leader of the team is almost always the most popular character for like let's say children to sort of imagine themselves as, or certainly like one of the most, like Chase in the uh, in the Paw Patrol. Or like, let's say, Iron Man slash Captain America and the Avengers, right? Like, being the leader is it usually means that, like, you are the most powerful, that, like, you know, you're the most – you're at the center of, like, all the important plot lines. You're the, you're the quarterback, right? And yet it, it does feel consistent from the very beginning of the Turtles, from, like, when I remember playing Turtles on the playground, that Leonardo – nobody wants to be Leonardo because he's, he's the least – fun of the turtles that's that's like built into his character that like the he he wants to be serious he wants to be like grown up um and i'm wondering is that uh, you know what, what do we make of that is that is that like a failure in the storytelling the fact that like the 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 turtle that should be like the sort of narrative fulcrum of the of the group uh is is in fact like the least compelling one to sort of at least at least to sort of put yourself in the shoes of or is that like a, a necessary that that there has to be like a wet blanket at the center to, so that the others can be like comedians and class clowns yeah. Or am I am I just am I slandering Leonardo left and right? No, no, I think you're right. I mean, there are I definitely know people who like Leonardo the best. Um, but I right. so so it does happen. It does happen. It does happen. Like you're also you're also an adult now, and they are adults now too. Unless you're talking about six year olds <laughs> that you know. I guess that's true. <laughs> um, but that said, I mean, I think we're talking about when they were kids it's like leonardo was always my favorite i've heard said okay um but like yeah so he's this he's the straight man basically uh most of the time they tried in the um short lived um and ill conceived rise of the teenage mutant ninja turtles cartoon to make him the joker and it did not work uh in my opinion um but yeah, that, so that's he's, the 2018 Nickelodeon yes. animated series. Okay, that's, got it. Yep, yep. yep. And um, yeah, people don't like him as much because he's like the the teacher's pet. You know, he's the yeah, he's the one who wants to be grown up the most. He's the one who takes things seriously. Um, but at the same time, that also kind of gives him, in a way, the most leeway. Like. You can, you know, it's it's more unexpected when he does something out of character, because uh, all the rest of them can be funny. I mean, Leo's funny too. They're all funny, but like all the rest of them kind of have a lot more, um, a lot more expected breadth, I guess. I like to usually compare him to Cyclops from the X Men, who is also, at least until recently, where they did a bunch of a bunch of character development, apparently. Um, everyone's least favorite X-Men. <laughs> you know, people think of Wolverine as the leader, but he's not usually. Cyclops is usually the leader and nobody wants to be him. 
Right. That's true. Right. Yeah. It, it makes know, me think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to be like, could he, could we even compare some iterations of Leonardo with Michael Scott from the office? And that like, uh-huh. he is, he is put into the role of leader. He kind of knows how a leader should act, but it feels like he is constantly terrified. He knows that the emperor has no clothes. He is worried that nobody respects him and kind of, you know, sometimes nobody, res- you know, and I think it, it comes out very well in the movie that we will eventually discuss that like in an opening scene, they've all, they've all snuck away to, to sort of like, uh, um, you know, peep on the human world. And when they come back, uh, Splinter is very suspicious and the three turtles are, you know, stone faced, like are, 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 you know, committed to the, to the cover story in Leonardo just like instantly cracks under pressure and he's like i'm sorry we snuck away they they didn't want me to tell but i gotta tell and it's sort of like he he is constantly like pushed between like wanting the respect of splinter and wanting the respect of the fellow turtles and like he ends up in this position where like he's sort of making nobody completely happy and you can kind of sympathize yeah and you can kind of sympathize with them in that way that like michael scott in a lot of ways seems miserable being the boss like he desperately wants to be a successful boss but i think he knows in his heart that he he's not quite up or or at least in the in the british version of the office i think that came out much better whereas that the michael scott of the american version actually did sort of like rise to the occasion well and and leonardo does too right like in most iterations uh they're their roles are pretty solid from the start. Um, this one is uh, kind of unusual because they're not quite yet the versions of them that we expect them to be. Um, you know, so Leonardo is like supposedly the leader, but they don't really follow him until, you know, the end. Spoilers. Um, and Similarly, like they do kind of the same thing to Donatello. It's like he's portrayed as a nerd, but he's not like the super genius that we that we see him uh, in 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 other versions of this. So it's like Leo has a lot of he puts a lot of pressure on himself, and it's to kind of be everything, and it doesn't always work out. But like he matures into it. He like kind of is the 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 one who. Um, the one who patterns himself the most after Splinter, and so he's kind of, you know, Splinter Junior. It's uh, interesting. We should we should probably talk. We should probably like let drop what uh, what thing we're talking. Oh about, yeah, you know. And so <laughs> what we're talking about is the uh, the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles feature film, Mutant Mayhem, and it's uh, I I think it's streaming. It's not, I don't know if it had a theatrical release, but it, it did. Was, it did, but uh, yeah, oh, now it did. I know firsthand. Okay, uh, well, it's I, I saw it from Paramount Plus, but uh, it sounds like it sounds like you got a story, Matt. What's uh, <laughs> what, tell, was, tell us about the theatrical release? I was excited for this one because I have fond memories of turtles. I once uh, I once dressed as a turtle for Halloween. It was like a homemade costume where we used the lid of a, a plastic green garbage can from Home Depot as a shell. Oh, that was um, good. My, the the one that I saw a lot was a laundry hamper. Was a you know a plastic laundry. Oh basket, yeah, but that, that's better. That Yours too. is better. It has the texture. My parents it. made them out of poster board. I had two for one Halloween because the first one <laughs> was destroyed by the rain, so they made a backup. Aww. But yeah, but my but my kids my kids have not been. Ex- 
exposed to previous versions of the Turtles, and so I felt like it felt like this was a good time to get on that bandwagon. So I brought uh, my nine year old, and I also brought my three year old along for the ride because somebody somebody had to do it. You know, and my wife. It was a whole family outing, and we got like a third of the way through the movie, and they were into it. And then there is a scene where April O'Neil, who is a high school student in this one, which is it, it changes the dynamic in interesting ways, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, is telling a story about why she is a bit of a social outcast and she she desperately needs to to get a win and charmingly she feels like the way to like earn everyone's respect is through student journalism but the the reason she really wants to get back all the popular kids at my high school matt i don't know what you you know the newspaper was like the cool click they sat at the nice the big table you know well, she's not just on now the newspaper. The she's a, she's on like the AV club, <laughs> right? Yeah, and that she has a she has a, a backstory, a tragic backstory, where she was hosting a a live sort of a video broadcast of the entire school when she discovered that she had crippling stage fright and immediately like threw up on camera. And then the clip of this was like remixed on TikTok in a bunch of like hilarious ways. Um, and it, my nine year old son has a phobia of throwing up he doesn't actually throw up a lot he's just afraid that he might and after that scene he became so terrified that it might happen again in the movie that he had to leave and so that's as far into the movie as i got that my wife stayed in with my three-year-old and i i sat in the lobby so you guys are gonna have to so what i i interrogated my three-year-old <laughs> after the movie was done and i found out two things right i found out from my three-year-old that my son's instincts were absolutely right and that there was more throwing up at the end of yep. the movie and so that like my attempts to like convince him in the lobby that like look the odds that there's more throwing up in this movie are incredibly. I'm actually Don't really go. glad I You're got totally that You're totally safe. Yeah. We're to- there's no yeah, more puke like, look, in the- <laughs> Lightning doesn't strike twice in the same movie because it's like it it it's like a comic uh, callback. And I also found out from my three year old that the final bad guy at the end of this movie is a whale. And well, I was I was unable to get any more context about that. So I'm hoping you guys can explain. I love that. Wait, and you really haven't seen? You haven't come back and watched the watched the movie? No, I I quite enjoyed <laughs> the first third of the movie. Uh, I believe Ice Cube is in it at some point. Yeah, he plays the whale. He's the he's yeah. the whale. He is a he. Ice Cube yeah. is a whale. No, well, he's the Brendan Fraser of- character from the movie The Whale. It's a crossover. <laughs> it's a cinematic universe with this, uh, The Whale, and The Lighthouse with Willem Dafoe. His characters. <laughs> 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 but oh I, I liked yes. what I saw of this movie, and and I'm I will now that I'm told it's streaming on Paramount Plus, I'll, I'll see if I can watch the end. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, watch okay, the middle too. Th- yeah. This is so. <laughs> Don't just watch the well. Some things, gotcha. some things we should say about this uh, uh, about this film is that one, it's animated. Right. Like, and so that, that there are like, I feel like there are the animated turtle properties and then there are the live action uh, turtle properties, including, you know, my beloved um, 1990 uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie where they dance to tequila, but then shout ninjutsu. That like, that I, w- I would like. Great Leonardo oh, wow. movie, by the way. Great Leonardo movie. And great movie True. in general. 
Yep. And I want, yeah, I mean, I wanted to watch that scene, that scene over and over and over, uh, featuring James Saito as the shredder. And that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, those, those were the, I mean, those were like the rubble, rubber suit turtle movies, right? And that, the kind of like the Howard the Duck esque sort of, uh, technology there and the making the, the faces, you know, uh, express, um, and emote in, in that turtle movie. But no, this belongs to the, uh, this belongs to the kind of the lineage of the teenage, Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon that we watched in the eighties, um, in that it is it is fully animated, though it is you know sort of three D animated, and it's done. The animation is kind of done in a, I don't know, uh, Matt. You do a lot of three D stuff. Like how would it's you like character- claymation esque? Right. It has it has like a uh, a lower frame. It's a little bit jerky. It's it's having it. Tis the season to watch the Nightmare Before Christmas, and I've seen it like twice in the last couple weeks, and it has that kind of vibe. Everything looks a little waxy. The the animation looks a little bit jerky, and it also like the the color palette and the lighting. It has a sort of garbage pail kids vibe that everything is like everything is like obnoxious really analogy, and ugly. Yeah. Yeah, like all, everything is – everyone is like an ugly caricature to almost to the point where like the turtles are the most pleasing character design and all the humans look yep. monstrous in yep. some way. Yeah, I yeah, like it. Oh, sorry, Richard. You go. No, I was just going to say that I think that that was very deliberate, uh, that toward the end of the movie, um, Superfly, uh, played by you know, the aforementioned uh, Ice – <laughs> ice cube yeah ice cube but one of the many one of the many it's, ices out there yep um uh yeah mentions um this uh this ugly earth and i think that ugliness and monstrosity uh and what constitutes that is um a theme that they were trying to investigate and the character design comes out uh a lot uh to to, to kind of portray that the other, I mean, the other thing I noticed about the the visual style of the film was that you know the there was definitely a like a privileging of the line of the kind of like where you could sort of see the penciling, you know, uh, mm-hmm. through and like the the heritage of the of the characters as two D comics characters, um, you know, as line drawings was uh, a really interesting. I mean, was a, a a really interesting choice and made it you know made it interesting. I mean, I, I'd call it a, a strong a strong use of the like the capacity for 3D you know computer aided 3D animation because it didn't it didn't go for you know like the smooth glossy it didn't have the kind of like like the CGI punching uh, computer animation that Marvel that all third acts of all Marvel movies are um, well so I think you know, that this was also influenced by the style of um, Spider Verse a lot mm. um, it's it's different it's its own thing but I think that they it looks like they were like, oh, we can, this is a kind of thing that we can do with this. Yeah. Um, I think it was pretty effective, even it though was, it's, yeah. some of it, some of it is pretty kind of hard super, to look at. But. Yeah. Super interesting, but, but super interesting visually. Yeah. Pete. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah. Cause they use, it's a, it's implied mixed media, which is one of the things it shares with Spider-Verse where mm. Spider-Verse is showing you graffiti in spray paint that's animated by computers 
in addition to the sort of pencil drawing style that they're doing. And then this one has very sort of scribbly, sketchy pencil drawing, but then also the feeling of stop motion, you know, claymation animation and a sort of garbage pail kids aesthetic. And it kind of jumps back and forth between different sort of media suggestions. So that, that's what and, I think. And, the, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, it's, that's the connection to Spider-Verse, I think, one of them, other than also the New Yorkness of it. And yeah, sort of, but, yeah. And also um, Ferris Bueller. Yeah. <laughs> well, so okay, in this one the the turtles are clearly like 15-year-olds. I feel like I feel like yep. American movie teenagehood is, you know, there is a line uh that is getting a car, you know, and that like there are the Ferris Bueller teenagers or, you know, what, the American Pie teenagers or the right like Well, the super bad teenagers, right? this was on that side right like this yeah, was just pre, on this side yeah pre pre car um and like it's uh donatello the awesomest turtle is driving in this and it's but he's not supposed to. he's not supposed to be right like and it turns out like he's okay at it and it's you know it's a call out and it's a plot point and it's a it's a nice moment but that that like he's not he's not allowed to drive like well hey he's a turtle he doesn't have a, a driver's license you know he's just not going to the to the dmv and, and you know stood in line but uh um, that like, uh, yeah. And that, that, you know, it creates, it creates sort of different dynamics if they are the, oh man, I wish I could kind of teenagers. And actually there's even a joke about, about, uh, Leonardo's voice cracking when he's yeah. talking to April. Um, and, uh, there's a difference between that and then being the, like the slightly more independent self-actualized teenagers that the presence of a car, uh, allows you to have in movies where you can kind of move through a landscape in a way that is, uh, that is unconstrained. You know, there's, there's a kind of like, there's a way in which splinter, you know, is like, you know, you kids are grounded or you kids, you know, um, have a curfew and they, they sort of have to listen, uh, because they don't, you know, they don't have that car. They can jump really far. <laughs> yeah, I mean they do. They do traverse the city in a in a network of of sewers and sewers and subway tunnels. Yeah, and so it's like, very Marty McFly of them, actually. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, uh, the power of love is a is a you know mysterious thing. Um, <laughs> the um, uh, them going to Ferris Bueller, which is sort of an inciting incident. They go to a like a an outdoor screening of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, they say in Brooklyn. I'm not sure if Brooklyn is actually like that, you know, any, but, uh, the, they have, uh, they go and watch and they're watching the human world, but also they're sort of, they're watching Ferris Bueller and it's like, it's what if we could be, uh, overt, right? Like what if we could be out of the, uh, out, out of the shadows, forgive me, As but, but, uh, you know, um, but also, I think they're saying like, oh, man, wouldn't it be great to be just two years older? <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be nice if we were a different species? Well, yeah, that 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 also. But what is I mean, I don't know. What is what is the species? What do the what do the turtles represent? Even what is it? What does it matter that they're turtles, Richard? You're the foremost expert. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it matters that they're turtles, they're, but they're not quite turtles and they're not quite humans and they're not quite anything and they kind of only have each other even other mutants are not really like them um and they i think they've always sort of represented the kind of genericized subaltern they don't 
track directly onto any like human subgroup. Um, the fact that they're not humans at all, they didn't even start out as humans. Uh, so they kind of transcend all kinds of um, racial and ethnic uh, boundaries. And so anybody who feels like they don't fit in can kind of relate to them in some way. Mm. Um, I think it's I think it's very interesting that this in this movie, all of the mutants are um, animals who were mutated. None of them were humans who became animals. Um, right. It has a very Guardians of the Galaxy three vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is interesting because um, it that's that's the original way that um, in the original Mirage comics. Uh, the turtles and Splinter were all animals originally, and in the uh, in the cartoon, the '80s cartoon, they changed it so that Splinter was originally human, that he was um, a ninja master. Who, right, which is how he knew ninjutsu in the first yeah. place. Whereas in this one, they just watch a bunch of movies, which is. Better than what they did in the Michael Bay ones, at least, where it's just like, oh, we found a book about ninjas. <laughs> and then, but the the visual gag I'll never forget from like what the 1990 movie is that the whole thing is Splinter is the pet of yeah. a ninjutsu master, and there's like a montage where like he's watching the people in the dojo train, and this little animatronic rat in a cage is also like mimicking the movements, like learning yeah. ninjutsu. That's in, straight in out of the rat form. That's straight out of the comic. Like the mm-hmm. the the framing of it is exactly out of the comic, um, and I guess they thought that was a little weird uh, for the car- for the original mm-hmm. cartoon, but it works better here. I I really thought that we were gonna get a reveal at the end where Splinter, who um, is you know prejudiced against humans because he's been traumatized uh, by being attempted to be you know like murdered by humans the every single time a rat he, every every exterminator yeah. you know every exterminator yeah. a genocide of the rats right so he's you know the your 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 dad who kind of doesn't doesn't like you know the people who 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 live in the place where you live um i thought that there was going to be a reveal that actually he had been a human originally um and he was so like embittered by how humans treated him uh, after and and his sons after the the mutation that he just like swore off being swore off being human and that was something that happened interestingly in like one of the original um, the original cartoon series there was an episode where uh, Splinter turns back into a human and he just goes for a walk. And the turtles are all really scared that he was never—he's never going to come back. That he was—he was stuck with them while he was a rat, but now that he's human again, he's just like free, whatever. And then, of course, the—the the effect starts to wear off. He starts turning back into a rat while he's out in the world. He doesn't have any money and all of this stuff. And he's like, "Oh yeah," and and people start you know freaking out. And he comes back, and his and and the moral of the story is like. Actually, humans are terrible. Uh, I was I was right. Humans are awful, and it's better not to be a human. And that was how the episode ended. Um, 
and th- it's 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 interesting because that's a really different take um on what this was trying to do this one was trying to do and that's maybe um that's maybe because the discourse drink has shifted over the last you know 30 years um Sure. I mean, the, there were, he was coded, he was kind of conspiracy theorist coded to me. And like, and it was kind of like your crazy dad, ha, you know, I, having, I, I feel like, I don't know, like, um, there are no milking machines. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like the, yeah. the, uh, I, kind of like Walter, Walter in, um, in the Big Lebowski coded mm. a little bit where he has, you know, uh, he, he has been traumatized and he's got like just, just some, some weird ideations on account of his PTSD. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it, this Splinter seemed very different than previous iterations. I remember because Splinter is usually portrayed as very calm, very wise, enlightened. Uh, you know, perhaps like you know, um, tranquil in contrast to the manic turtles. And this Splinter is, you know, he's neurotic. He's, uh, you know, self-pitying. He's, you know, he's a mess. He's a New Yorker, right? So he <laughs> feels like there's something almost like, you know, Woody Allen-ish, you know, complaining about like, you know, oh, it's so yeah. hard to it's hard to meet a mutant when you're my age. I'm, yeah. I'm doing the Woody Allen accent instead of the Jackie Chan accent. <laughs> yeah, he's um, very, he's very single dad in this uh in this version. And it's interesting. I, I thought a really nice touch was the way his like cardigan vest sweater, his purple cardigan vest sweater recalls a little bit the karate gi or the robe, you know, that he wears mm-hmm. in the, the eighties cartoon that, uh, TV, uh, animated TV show that like, um, it was, you know, it was sort of adjacent to that. It was reminiscent of that in a way while still being, you know, this sort of plaid, uh, you know, plaid sweater vest that that was very yeah. That was one hundred percent like uh, you know fit with a a Barkle lounger, uh, Barkle lounger kind of dad vibe. You know, for the first I'm- half of the movie, uh, Jeff Jeff Rowe of course is heavily involved in this movie. I believe he directed it, and Jeff Rowe wrote the Mitchells versus the Machines. And one of my least favorite things about the Mitchells versus the Machines, which we also podcasted about, was the way that the dad figure was kind of boorish and useless and kind of terrible and how at the end of the movie, he gets to sort of save the day for no reason other than like, it's sort of necessary for the dad to save the day in order to kind of patch up the family. And I think that there's a perspective about like, how do you think about your parents from the perspective of a child that felt similar to me between, and I attributed to Jeff Rowe, just I had nothing else to attribute it to where it's sort of like, well, yeah, the ninjas are turtles are teenagers. So of course their dad is kind of a cruel, narcissistic, xenophobic idiot. Right. Like, and, uh, and he does come around and I like how, where he got to by the end of the movie, but I thought, I mean, I I think that he, yeah, I think that it's really earned though. Like he's always, always portrayed as loving. Like Mm. he's really well-meaning. He's, paranoid if you can call it that like it turns out that he was right about everything um there are milking machines there are actual milking machines. there are actual milking machines um and humans will not accept you and you know unless he uh, turns out save the world i mean he meets one human and then he's like he's he's against suddenly he's against this um this plot to um mutate every 
animal in the world and then kill all the humans because he says now this is gonna kill the one good human in the world april after he meets her like five minutes later like so it's he's been very isolated since his trauma um but he's he's always very caring like he always when he perceives that the turtles like just don't want to hang out with him because they're doing whatever they're doing out in the out in the human world he throws them a surprise party he's like okay i know you want to be out in the human world but really it's not safe out there i'll bring the human world to you and he's like very kind and very giving and like he feels genuinely bad um that he can't give the turtles what they want at this point in their life um he's very lonely but it's he's never shown i think he's never portrayed as like pathetic or hateful you know he's he's really trying his hardest and it's he's the linchpin of a loving family and he does have to get over these ideas about what all humans are like um and that's when he sees himself in superfly um you know they do that we're not so different you and i kind of thing <laughs> but that's i mean it's it's sort of from the very beginning when giancarlo esposito is you know um working as baxter stockman uh, yeah. yeah as baxter stockman is making the ooze uh and delivering to a baby superfly right like delivering yep. his his villain origin story or not even villain origin story delivering the like uh deterministic psychological foundation backstory monologue of it's like you know i never felt like i fit in with anyone and i fit in with uh i fit in with all of you so i've made my own family and i'm one of the mutants and we're the mutants and we're the mutant family and that you know that that uh you know that 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 dynamic of of uh, that dynamic of kind of belonging, uh, belonging and not belonging is, um, you know, is really interesting. And I, I like, uh, I, and it, it, it paid off for me most in kind of a perverse way. I mean, it's my own view of it. So it's going to be slightly perverse, but it's like in slightly a perverse way at the very end in the, if I can fast forward to the, the climactic final battle where, you know, it's, um, where a couple of things are revealed. One, it's not, <laughs> it's not just that, uh, they have to save the world. It's, there has to be a media narrative around them saving the world. Like yep. April has to get on the, uh, on the network news has to like what drop, <laughs> drop kick whoever is actually, uh, broadcasting on, on network news and sort of anchor it. And it's like, no, these turtles are saving. They're not bad mutants. They're actually fighting the, the whale, Matt. It's Wait, a, it, this it's is, a whale. This is the whale fight, right? Yeah. This is the yeah. whale fight. And then, and they can't. So the, the turtles are swept up. Uh, uh, the, uh, Matt, the whale has a, like a lobster claw. The, the whale is an amalgam of a lot of animals. It's like a super yeah. mutant. It's like it's, it's like fifty or sixty animals at once. Is it in the water? They're fighting in the water. No, no, no. Place? It's uh, it's it comes yeah. onto it comes onto land. It's kind of a kaiju movie at this point. Ironically, yep. the whale is a rat king. But the Rat King, <laughs> but the Rat King is also not a Rat King. But like a rat, the whale is a Rat King. <laughs> when is a Rat King not a Rat King? <laughs> um, that that they're so they get to their lowest point, right? Like they're they're held in the in the whale's lops in the fly whale's lobster claw, about to be crushed, and this sort of this ballet of New York types, right? 
comes to uh, comes to the rescue. So the uh, you know we have to get the MacGuffin up to the top of the whale where we're going to throw it in the whale's blowhole, and that will defeat the whale, right? And it's like anti ooze or whatever, and. Uh, and April is is there on the the ground, or someone is Splinter is there on the ground, and um, it's like we have to get this up to the kids up uh, who are being held in the whale's claw up uh, up you know thirty stories up, and uh, a you know New York food delivery man right um, grabs it and is like I can do this you know or a, a more of a New York esque kind hey forget about it I can do this right and he uh runs he takes it uh part of the way passes it off to a yellow cab driver you know and the uh the yellow cab driver like does it and then the yellow cab driver is in, in a you know midair thing and then some of the mutants help out and then like it goes to some like skate punks you know who do a do a whole bunch of tricks and like do it. And so it becomes this sort of ballet of New York types. And the, you know, the idea is in a movie where, where the, the dynamic, a lot of the dynamic is really about belonging and outsiderness, right? Um, it's kind of claiming. It's, it's sort of like identifying these people and sort of claiming them as part of the community. Uh, like claiming, like this is New York, right? These are the, these are the types of people. They're all different. They're all kind of like their own culture. They're all their own, um, you know, kind of, uh, their own job, their own thing in a way, but like they all come together and kind of form the, the, um, form the, uh, the fabric of New York. And, and I, I was watching this and sort of perversely, I thought like the, the, um, the food delivery guy and the taxi driver don't exist anymore. They are like, uh, gig economy wage slaves. Um, the, the skate punks were all like arrested and driven out by Giuliani's broken windows policing. Uh, and when does this movie even take place? Right. Because all of the, all of the things that are being sort of celebrated as the reminds me of the, um, speaking of, of Rudy Giuliani, it reminds me of the, the, um, ad campaign, the post 9-11 ad campaign, uh, that had all of these, uh, you know, New York types, uh, it was called the New York miracle, be a part of it. And it was like post 9-11 New York, uh, tourism starring Rudy Giuliani and Woody Allen. I, you know, and it's, it's left to, as an exercise to the reader, which of those aged more poorly, but the, the, uh, the, the, all those things, I was thinking, like, when does this movie take place? Because those those things that are being celebrated as being quintessential New York are actually not a part of life in New York or in any major city, uh, in any major city anymore. So there is there is this kind of lie that the movie tells you about belonging right at the you know right at the climactic moment, right at the the moment of catharsis where it's supposed to be, um, yeah. you know, where it's supposed to be. Uh, at its most stirring i think it's important that this like this is new york it's like a nostalgia version of new york like it's set today but new york kind of oh like like a lot you know it accumulates layers of itself without really ever getting rid of the old ones um much like a fly uh, accumulating animals until it's a giant kaiju with horses for feet and a giraffe for a forehead and stuff. Yeah. 
Um, but I think I just want to just want to say that, like, I think it's important to note that um, this only happens like everybody being like, yeah, OK, we recognize that the um, that the turtles are are actually good, that not all mutants are bad. Hashtag not all mutants. Yep. Um, you mentioned, right, that, yeah, April has to go on TV to say, actually, these these turtles are good. That that guy is bad. Um, but they're good and they're trying to save us and whatever. Um, after to counter the previous thing, which was the, 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 the regular news anchor going on and saying, these mutants are terrorizing New York and they seem to be led by these turtles and everything is, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a counter message, uh, and and that was that's the point like that's really the the turning point like emotionally of the movie of the turtles when they say well we wanted to save the world this is what what um this is what kicked off the whole thing they say well we want to be accepted by humans if they see us as heroes they will accept us therefore let's be heroes and at the point where they realize or they think they realize that no matter what they do the humans are never going to accept them and they decide to still be heroes anyway, because it's the right thing to do. That's the moment when everybody, uh, that's the moment when, when April goes on TV and, and lets everybody know, uh, that actually the turtles are good guys. Um, so, you know, television has to tell us how to feel about, um, people in the world. And, uh, you know, it, it, they get what they want in the way that they want to get it by giving up on it. Uh, yeah, which is I just thought was interesting to since we were talking about that that um, that moment. You know, the, the when you were talking about the scene where the, the people of New York sort of jump in to rescue the heroes, the non-heroes, uh, the the non-superpowered people, um, the community. Uh, rescues the heroes. I was reminded of this sort of famous scene in the first Spider-Man movie yeah. where uh, Tobey Maguire is an impossible situation, right? He is being menaced by the Green Goblin and he has to save uh, both Mary Jane and a uh, triumphal of school children. I love that, you know, in, in retrospect, it's not enough that it's a triumphal of innocent people. It has to be a triumphal entirely of children. I don't even think there's like a supervisor in that tram. Um, and he's he definitely can't do this on his own, but then all the people of New York start throwing debris off the bridge. Um, and of course this, I, I believe that this was a scene that they added post nine 11 that they purposely, you know, probably Rudy Giuliani and Woody Allen wrote it together um, while they were together doing the commercial. It is, is like literally like you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. And it feels kind of like the turtles thing, but like with a little bit different emphasis, because I feel like the point of the Spider-Man movie is that like New Yorkers are like a big club and we are now we're admitting Spider-Man into the club. Like we've accepted him as one of us, but like, you know, to be a New Yorker is a sort of homogenous group. Whereas that it, it felt like almost the point of the, the turtles movie is that like, Everybody is subaltern. Everyone is part of this weird little subculture and everyone is no different than the turtles. Like there is no mainstream 
Um, yeah, it's not like there's a dynamic. It's not like well, Ferris Bueller's pretty mainstream, right? Like, but it's not like it's true. Like in in high school, it's not like there's a dynamic of like the popular kids. You don't. I mean, maybe they exist, but you don't see them. You know, you don't see the you don't see the kind of like superordinate group. Uh, you just you just sort of see the the subordinate groups, and the other ones are kind of in, are kind of imagined, but not um, not depicted. Maybe I mean maybe the point of the ending is that like the turtles are looking out at the Prospect Park crowd watching Ferris Bueller and imagining that all the humans are Ferris Bueller's, right? That everyone is this insider who feels like they have access and and mo- mobility and uh poise. But in fact, like everyone is a turtle who's watching Ferris Bueller as this impossible ideal that like no- none of the humans can be Ferris Bueller either. And I feel like the turtles maybe don't don't understand, you know, keep in mind I haven't watched the end of this movie, but it feels like for what you're describing it that there are all these turtle like groups that are probably that, that probably view themselves as like weird little misfit outsiders like the turtles do who could never be Ferris Bueller who sort of jump in in solidarity with the turtles. Pete, we haven't heard from you in a minute. What's up? <laughs> no, sorry. I've been, tra- I've been listening and I, I love the Ninja Turtles and I've loved hearing this stuff. Uh, I did want to suggest that there's an angle here that's in the style and presentation of the movie as well as in the subtext of how the movie is written. And I was interested in that it was never overtly referenced in the movie as what was happening, which and which so another way of looking at the movie in terms of Splinter and the Turtles is that Splinter is an immigrant and the Turtles are children of immigrants, right? We sort of talked about this. They're a generic, mm-hmm. they're the subaltern, right? That's one form of the subaltern in the sense of like these are people who are not had their own voices, they aren't being talked about, they aren't seen in the culture. And one of the weird facts about humans is that our kids take so much from their peer environment rather than from their parents their language, their culture. So just, it only takes even one generation for people to change like really dramatically from what their parents were like. And, uh, and particularly in like language. Um, but the turtles are constantly making pop culture references to humans. You know, Drake, I think is referenced as the goat, which of course is mm-hmm. ironic because in this, this is a universe where Drake might actually be a goat. Uh, but he is not. He is a Drake, which is not a duck. Right? But like Drake is Drake is not a Drake is the goat, but he is not a goat. And Drake is not a duck. Uh, and, and that is that is to be understood. Um, I thought that it was interesting that Superfly wanted to kill all humans, but nobody had bothered to tell him that Missy Elliott would also die. Right. Like Superfly, <laughs> Superfly says he's super duper fly, you know, like Missy Elliott. He's like so excited to sort of quote Missy Elliott. And this seems like one of the moral problems with Superfly's proposition. This whole idea is, is that, oh, this the, the humans are this sort of external group and we need to kill all the humans in order to supplant them and replace them. And the turtles are like, well, that's clearly wrong because we know this one turtle and we like them. None of them are talking about the degree to which they've all already participated in human culture and it's a big part of who they are and their identity and what they like. Well, sure. It's like, this is why this is like, you know, the co-option of, of, uh, of hip hop culture by the mainstream Mm -hmm. is really problematic because in, in that problematic, in that it presents problems because like once you commodify these things and sort of treat them as, treat them as a pose or treat them as a, as a style, like you forget the, the, the history of how it got that way. The whole, like the whole, you know, um, the whole, uh, animating energy behind the, artistic uh the artistic movement uh that you like uh, kind of yeah. ironically superfly is voiced by ice cube right 
Yeah, well, yeah. even just charting the history of rap in Ninja Turtles movies is mm. a really interesting arc because in the first movie, there's the rap song, right, by Partners in Crime, T-U-R-T-L-E, Power, where it is a generic early 90s rap song in which they tell you the plot of the movie from the perspective of someone who's never seen it, right? Like, that's like like the Ghostbusters <laughs> rap. It's like, you know, where they misidentify. The, no, the Adams Family rap. rap is the one that gets me, right? <laughs> <laughs> what do they say in the Adams Family rap? That, like, they, never... they do what they want to do, say what they want to say, live how they want to live, play like they want to play. Somebody else does That's what they want to do. It's kicking. They slap a friend. Adams Family. <laughs> Wait, that can't, that I mean, that can't sounds accurate right. to me. That it's, describes yeah, the Adams Family. The Adams Family is the happiest family in cinema. Is the most normal, well-adjusted. <laughs> it's a horoscope, man. It's true of everyone in the movies. <laughs> they like, all uh, do what they want to do. It's the entire theory of method acting. I mean, I, you have to have a motivation for Pete, what I'm you're a, doing. I mean, my fa- my favorite is when it's clear that the person writing the song has um, actually not seen the movie and doesn't even bother to, to summarize the plot. <laughs> and that is that is best evinced for me in R. Kelly's Gotham City, uh, yeah. where he he uh, describes a city of justice, a city of yes. peace, like a city Same of era. love for every yep. one of us. Yes, <laughs> but that's uh, but I'm sorry, Pete. Yes, okay. So T U R T L E power. So the first Ninja Turtles movie has a rap song because it was fashionable at the time to have rap songs. But other than that, there's nothing really in the movie that associates the Ninja Turtles with African-American culture, right? Uh, the original Daredevil, right, is the inspiration for the Ninja Turtles in addition to the X-Men. X-Men are sort of generic minority. Daredevil is a generic lower-class New Yorker, working-class New Yorker, but he's white. You know, like there's no particular link up until this point between the Turtles and being, you know, African-American. Then in the second movie, Vanilla Ice is the rapper in it, right? And comes up with the famous Ninja rap song and Diamond Dallas Page is the super shredder. And you're just really far away from the idea that the Ninja Turtles represent a sort of authentic New York hip hop experience, right? It is the like most polished, least authentic uh, least kind of like uh, crates of records and MCs at the block party, you know, kind of uh, kind of rap is happening in this movie. And then by the third one, they're time traveling to feudal Japan. So just forget about it. Uh, and then I and I skip a couple. I didn't watch, you know, the Ninja Turtles for a while. But then when you come back in the 2014 one, um, there is, I think, I felt like in the 2014 one, they were definitely coding at least one or two of the Ninja Turtles as being black. Um, and, and this sort of is a kind of thing, well, of course they are because they, they live in New York, right? And like, like why, why would it be the case that four random animals would become humans in New York and they would all be white, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, like, but at the same time, of course, like turtles becoming animals doesn't make any sense because it's like, uh, you know, what, what is the default experience of these kids that are in this very inner city sort of situation. And so if they are truly becoming inner city New York teenagers, they should be, like, like one, show some of that experience. Well, one should be Dominican, right? Like one yeah. should be, or, or Puerto Rican. There should Rican. be 20 like, of them. One yep. should be, one, one should one be like should... Lao, you know, like yeah. if, if yep. we're actually, yep. we're really going to represent the whole, uh, you know, panoply of, uh, of waves yeah. of immigration to New York. But, but the song Ta shell shocked by Ty Dolla Sign and others uh, and Juicy J. At, right? at Alia. Juicy J. Yeah, what's up? Uh, Ty Dollar Sign at Alia. At Alia, yes. Uh, and that's a song I listen to a lot in gym settings. Is a full-on hip-hop song where there are all sorts of hip-hop uh, and sort of rap 2000s 
you know, behavioral norms that are attributed to the Ninja Turtles. By the way, I, I really hate the last 30 seconds of that song because I love the song. But then it gets this part where, like, the, 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 the narrator talks about being sent nudes and sharing them with his friends as, like, a metaphor for the Ninja Turtles' relationship with each other. And it gets real weird real fast. And it's not appropriate for a movie for children or playing the song <laughs> for children. But at any rate, like, uh, in that point, it's like, this is not a fake hip-hop song anymore. And this is like supposed to be the sort of music of the Ninja Turtles. And then they back away from it in Ninja Turtles 2 where they like – they just throw tons of fan service at it. And they're like, this is going to be about Ninja Turtles lore. This is going to be about old Ninja Turtles characters. We're going to get like a big cover of the song, the, the classic song. We're not really engaged with them being like you know gritty New Yorkers anymore. But then here, like these are New York – they're not just teenagers. They're New York teenagers, and there's tons of New York hip-hop in the movie. Right. And so like you've gone to this from this place where the Ninja Turtles sure, start out. It, a lot yeah. of it kind of mostly old school. 80s. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. mostly 80s New York hip hop too. Right. 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 We're like we're like really in that in that. Uh, and it's not Ice Cube. Ice Cube, of course, is a West Coast rapper. No wonder he wants to blow up New York. Right. Like uh, <laughs> it's full of its East Coast hip hop. <laughs> but uh, although I don't know where M.O.P. is from. Did that song play twice? I love Anti Up. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. It did. Um, yeah. It did play twice. Right. And uh, is M.O. M.O.P. Are they from New York? Um, yeah, they're East Coast. So yeah, and Buster Rhymes is on the remix and stuff. So yeah, that all that all kind of tracks. Uh, I'll have to double check to see exactly where MOP is from. Uh, but uh, yeah, they're from New York City. Perfect. And they do, of course, talk about Shaolin. Uh, and the Wu-Tang Clan and whatnot, uh, sort of, and this kind of thing. But anyway, that, that's just what I wanted to point out, was that, like, the Ninja Turtles have come all The Ninja Turtles have, have a long road with terms of their relationship with, like, New York and black culture. And the place they're at now is, like, so different from where they were when they started. Um, sure. uh, yeah, I forget what I was responding to exactly there. But, but, um, but yeah, just the idea that, like, this is their culture. Uh, and so in destroying the people, they're destroying their culture. Um, and, and they don't ever acknowledge that like splinters. You know, I would expect splinters to sort of come to terms with it being like, well, like I see how you love those movies. I see how you love that music. You know, I see that you aren't really like me. You really kind of do belong to this world, even if they haven't figured it out yet. I mean, okay. And so I'm going to save this world for that, for you. Right. Like, me, that kind of thing. Let me just pitch you. Yeah. Uh, uh, let me, let me just pitch you kind of how we could have, how we could have dealt with that. Someone could have said to Superfly, you know, that that would mean actually, Kissing, uh, kill, <laughs> kissing. That's Freudian. That's Freudian. That would actually mean, uh, you know, that would actually mean killing Missy Elliott. And Superfly looks at the at that person and says, "That's okay. The author is dead." Superfly's an English literature with giant fly sunglasses on. Exactly. Yeah. With, uh, with, you know, thousands and thousands of lenses to cover yeah, the thousands yeah. and thousands. Now, of- now it just becomes a road trip movie attempting to mutate Missy Elliott to become his fly queen. <laughs> his super fly queen. There's I would, I would right watch there. that. I would actually pay premium. <laughs> I would pay premium over my streaming subscription to watch, to watch that movie. Yeah. So one of the, one of the unique films is we kind of round the bend on our hour. Let's talk about the, the end of the, the film. Um, one of the, the unique thing, in fact, the unique film thing about this movie is that the turtles actually kind of succeed in entering human society. This movie depicts them after they have, uh, after they've killed the whale, um, 
you know, achieving what Captain just like in Moby Dick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the denouement after they kill the whale and win. I was, yeah. I was right there with you. Um, <laughs> yeah. You mess with call, one of us, you mess with all of us. Queen Quang, come on, let's get him. Call, call <laughs> like, me Captain Ishmael. Captain. We're actually named after Renaissance sculptors. We can't. Uh, none of those Anglo-Saxon names in our, or, or none of those Hebrew names in our, uh, in our. Um, in our thing, but that's uh okay. So uh, they actually go to go to high school because April O'Neil has told everybody that they are uh, that they are actually the heroes. Everybody loves them in the end. The like they take off the mask, right? Like they uh, they come out of the sewer and they wear you know uh, color coded hoodies so that you still know which turtle is which. They go to high school and uh, Leonardo asks April to prom, and uh, that's you know. Something that has never happened before, to my knowledge, in a in a turtle's property. Richard, is this unique in the in the history of turtles? And what do you think it it uh, might mean, or what do you think it betokens for this particular expression of the franchise? Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, there are a couple of versions where something sort of sort of analogous happens, like in volume four of the original Mirage comics, which um, Peter Laird was doing on his own uh, for a few years before he decided that he was you know, tired of it and uh, sold it to Nickelodeon. Um, There's uh, not an alien invasion, but aliens make themselves known on earth. Aliens come down and they say, okay, we're, we're, we're aliens. And now you should know that aliens are real. And so aliens start walking around on earth all over the place. And the turtles are finally able to like go and like participate in society, like walk around on the street because people think that they're just aliens. So that's fine. Um, That happens there. And then in the ongoing, the current ongoing um, Ninja Turtles comic book series from IDW, uh, there was a uh, mutagen bomb that went off in New York. And uh, an area of New York gets mutated, which is then sealed off. And so basically there's a mutant town borough of New York where the turtles now have like, because everyone there or almost everyone there is a mutant, it's, you know, normal for them. They can just walk around. Um, But this is the first time that it's the turtles themselves. It's like, oh, we, we saved the day. Everybody knows that we're, we're cool. We're good. And so they just get over their prejudices against non-humans and accept us that's never happened before um and it's really interesting because i think it signals a very different attitude to um like cultural assimilation and what it means to be a minority and what it means to um participate in in society and like how uh how integration happens um and whether or not integration is even positive uh which has been in previous iterations of ninja turtles the idea that um that integrating into like wider society is even desirable is very like it has a very ambivalent attitude toward that whole idea um and uh it goes 
it goes back and forth, but like the idea the idea here that well actually it's not hopeless. Like don't give up. You feel like you're an outsider. It doesn't mean that you're always going to be an outsider. That's I think a brand new message um in in Ninja Turtles. And it's a little bit complicated here uh just I think sociologically because while it's true that like the turtles do give up their um their mission like like april says she's doing the same thing she's like i was doing this for all the wrong reasons and the turtles also come to the conclusion that they were trying to be heroic for all the wrong reasons they were trying to be accepted and now they realize they should do the right thing not because they'll be accepted because they don't feel like they ever will be but because it's the right thing and ironically, that ends up leading to them, actually. Their plan works. They are accepted. Um, so, it, But it's never happened before. And it's like, you know, that's why like, I, it occurred to me, like I was kind of referring to this as mutant model minority mayhem. Because it's like, <laughs> they're, they're thinking, like, if we can just be good enough, they'll overlook the fact that we're not like them. And... It turns out that they're right, which is weird. Even though they even though they don't end up doing it for that reason, they're like this is the right thing to do. We don't want to uh you know, we need to save the humans whether they accept us or not. Um their plan still works. Um and it's uh that's something that I'm still thinking about. Like it's really really different and i'd like to i'd like to hear what what you all think about that because it's a very different message and it's kind of um i don't want to say disturbing but it's very complicated um and i just wonder what what you all thought of that i mean it does seem a little ironic that like for a movie that we started out they're talking about this ugly world right how everything just feels nasty there it feels like what you're describing is kind of utopian that like yeah. we can all just get along. It's more optimistic than any other version of Ninja Turtles has ever been, and I kind of wasn't expecting that. Well, I mean, that's not to say that they couldn't walk it back or cover it with caveats in a sequel. That I'm betting yeah. that just because they're going to high school doesn't mean nobody sees color anymore. Mm. You know? yeah, the green I, color that is. Mm-hmm. So, what this makes me think of, Richard, that you're bringing up is it makes me go all the way back to the beginning to the proposition of why this exists in the first place, which is at least one way I would frame it. And you correct me if I'm wrong is the they're looking at stuff like, you know, daredevil and the hand, right. And they're looking at, at all their, all these other comics and the X-Men and stuff. And it's like, man, everything is all just like teenagers and ninjas and mutants. Like you could do anything. You could put anything out there. And as long as it says teenager, ninja or mutant on it, they're going to people are going to love it, even if it's trash. And so they pick the silliest thing that they can think of to align to this sort of teenager ninja and mutant thing. And the story really starts with like a big chip on their shoulder. Right. And, and you could say that the chip on the shoulder comes from the authors who are really uh, saying, say, like, say directing an, a, a, I guess, a critique, you could call it or a parody of uh, society back at itself or of the readership of these comic books back at themselves saying like, you know, well, why do you care about all these things that are so fantastical and strange, 
right? Like, you know, oh, I, I learned from my ninja master, you know, living in New York in the 1980s, right? Like, and, and he runs an underground gang of ninjas. And all of these sort of, there's this wonderful uh, paradox in the Ninja Turtles where because they were reacting to these things that were so prominent in the zeitgeist that seemed to them to be so stupid that there's like a real resonance and intuitive tradition that they're connecting with while at the same time they're not lending any credence to it being real right like 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 it's not like we actually believe that there are robots that are living in a, a giant robot dome in the center of the earth that are going out to steal like famous works of art or like other sorts of things that are happening because Lord I mean Frank, speak for yourself I know I mean seriously maybe these things are real but the point being that like the Ninja Turtles are very postmodern and very yeah. comfortable with being with postmodernity and part of oh, postmodernity yeah. is a sort of contemptuous disregard for people who kind of think that society is like organized in a, in a sort of organized and sensible sort of way. Um, and, and I think that like, for me, the contradiction is, is, uh, is that, and their nobility by which I mean, there's sort of nobility of purpose. There's sort of the Ninja Turtles have no reason to help people, but they do it anyway. Uh, and they do it, you know, because of their, their sort of quality of character. Uh, and, uh, and they do it because I guess of the model, the relationships they have for each other, the relationship with splinter, um, and if you go through all of that, you're thinking, OK, uh, what? so one of the good things about this is that it, it leaves them as a cipher, right? The Ninja mm -hmm. Turtles, I love that there are so many different interpretations of what the Ninja Turtles are because that sort of regard for the things that inspired them is so skeptical that you could really you could really change whatever you're contrasting against it. You know, you can really change what is the thing that isn't a ninja, what is the thing that isn't like a bunch, a gang of teenagers, a plucky gang of teenagers, right? Who are uh, who are teaming up because young people are more effective than old people at fixing things, right? Like uh, like that sort of thing. Um, and so I like that this interpretation exists. I like that they sort of got around to the idea that it's like, what if we did the Ninja Turtles, but they were they were actually just in school and they were just in school and they fought crime while they were in school, like Invincible, right? Like, uh, well, maybe hmm. not exactly like Invincible. And um, and I feel like they've sort of arrived at this premise. But, yeah, like the idea that society in general has accepted them, it just never it doesn't necessarily seem important because in the core message of it is this sort of acknowledgement of the absurdity of society. Maybe that's as I th think it talk about it. That's kind of what comes around is like there's really no point in this where every anybody says, you know, society is stupid. Right. Like all of these people are dumb. Or all these people are like, they don't know what they're talking about, right? Everything has a motivation. Everything has importance. Like the opinion of the taxi driver for the Ninja Turtles in this movie is important to how the plot of the movie is resolved. And I don't know if the Ninja Turtles, yeah, generally engage with, with society in general with such an expectation that it's going to work out in a sensible sort of way, right? Or just with it, with holding back on the idea that it's absurd. Like, like insisting, like maybe there is a sort of social order that could come out of this that we can all be happy with, you know, where there's like a steel clad ninja master with a horde of unlimited ninjas who are stealing televisions. Uh, I never did write that article, did I? I really wanted to write that article. I couldn't it's do it. It's not too late. It's not too late. Did I never? I never wrote that article about like whether GPT the four can do the math for you. 
That's true. Whether the scheme in the Ninja Turtles movie in 1990 would make sense, whether there were enough DVD players and televisions in New York in 1990 to operate a large ninja syndicate yeah, just from stealing and selling them back to the people you stole them from. It doesn't matter because um, you know you know who else was stealing DVD players in the 1990s. That's true. Dominic Toretto. That's right. right? That's and right. His, uh, and his clan. And, not, and they've saved the world like five or six times at this point, you know? Yeah. Do um, I smell a crossover? <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is that I do think there's a cultural current now where people are demanding that society makes sense. People are looking at society and they're saying, you know, I'm really pissed off that society doesn't make sense. And I'm demanding that society makes sense. And that's not a universally held demand in every generation. Yeah, and society makes less sense, even less sense now than it did 40 years ago when the Ninja Riddles came out. I, I think I mostly agree with you, but I would push back a little bit sure. on the idea that um, that the creators were – they were making fun of these tropes for sure. But then they didn't think it was stupid. Like okay. I, I, I think they genuinely loved Daredevil. You know, they were, they were unironically huge fans of um, – Jack Kirby and all of this superhero stuff and all of these martial arts uh, comics that were coming out, like they, they unironically loved them. And, but at the same time, they were able to take a step back and go, this is actually ridiculous, but it's still awesome. And they wanted to, so it's not like Ninja Turtles was never a, um, it's a pastiche but it almost isn't parody. Like it's it's it points out the tropes. Um, it definitely lampshades the tropes, but in a loving kind of way. And you're absolutely right that it's extremely postmodern. That it's like pointing out how all of this stuff doesn't quite fit together. It's like if you take all of these tropes and then you throw turtle in there, suddenly it's illuminated how kind of silly it is. But at the same time, it's still – I mean to the extent that um, postmodernism is about skepticism toward uh, grand narratives, the Turtles from the very beginning has um, overthrown that skepticism, which is a very postmodern thing to do also, right? Like it takes all of the trappings of postmodernism and then it says, okay, but these characters have – um, a moral center, like they they do believe in right and wrong. They're you know th- they they do have somewhere to stand in reality. And yeah, like most superheroes, they're fighting for the status quo rather than kind of they're they're trying to make the world a better place, not by pointing out how the world treats them, but by um, trying to stop the destructive forces uh, that are that are pointing out how terrible everything actually is, um, which is a very superhero thing to do. Um, and I think uh, a, something that was even more postmodernistic, postmodernistic in the like all the way to the n- absurdism or nihilism side of things would would not reinforce 
conventional ideas of good and evil as strongly as Ninja Turtles always has. Like, it's very important that the turtles have a code um, and that they care about each other. And which is a very un-postmodern thing which for for a property that is otherwise extremely extremely postmodern to its core and it's all about hybridization and it's all about um you know competing ideas of what it's like to be a person in the world um and this is the first time that it's like the status quo has really been overthrown almost by accident. But like, I th- it feels like the first time that society has genuinely evolved in Ninja Turtles, um, like on its own, kind of almost naturally uh, in a Ninja Turtles property. And it's just, it's really interesting that, that at this moment in history, they decided that that was the message that they wanted to convey with this movie. Well, that's uh, they also uh, set up a sequel, pretty. Uh, oh yeah, you know. So uh, I guess we'll we will have to see uh, how this cashes out in um, you know uh, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Two Mutant to Mayhem uh, when that <laughs> you know, when that when that comes out. Um, all right, we're gonna uh, leave our discussion there. Richard, want to thank you for joining us. It's uh, been a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for uh, it's great for, to be back. Yeah, gracing us. Uh, don't don't call it a comeback. He's been a turtle all along, and uh, I never and, stopped listening. I'm just you know on the other. I'm still talking. You just can't hear me. God bless you. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm amazed by all the people who know us who still listen to the, <laughs> listen to the show. Uh, I well, thanks everyone who who listens to the show. Thanks uh, Matt and thanks Pete very much. Uh, we'll be back next week with more overthinking and pie. We'll be back next week with episode 799. Set your watches, folks. Uh, and until then, you can visit us on the web. I don't know why you would, but you can visit us on the web <laughs> at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. You know, you can tell that some of the people making this movie loved the Ninja Turtles because of so many of the BS toys only characters who ended up playing like a major role in this. I mean, I had a Leatherhead toy. I don't know if you guys had a Leatherhead toy, but like the idea that we would be in the year of our Lord 2023 and there would be a Ninja Turtles movie that would come out and it would prominently feature Wingnut and Screwloose is not something that I would have put money on as someone who bought uh, action figures in the late 80s and early 90s with my pocket money. I mean, I never would have thought that Scumbug would be Splinter's <laughs> romantic interest uh, in a Ninja Turtles movie, but there Wait, you go. Wait, I'm sorry. What what happened? <laughs> Splinter, sorry, Splinter, makes out. Splinter makes out with someone at the end of this movie, Matt, and you can be the judge of whether we're making that go, up or not. Yeah, go ask No, go ask your three-year-old about it. It'll be... <laughs> he makes out with like a centipede monster. She did not mention that. <laughs>